Welcome to Talking in a Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Good morning, patrons. This is Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm here with Dr. Scott Heerman, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Miami. Dr. Heerman was an NEH postdoctoral fellow last fall, and I suspect that he found plenty of materials at the Library Company to kindle his interest in slavery and emancipation in the Atlantic. Today, we'll learn about Dr. Heerman's first book, The Alchemy of Slavery, Human Bondage and Emancipation in the Illinois Country, 1730 to 1865. Published by Penn Press in 2018, The Alchemy of Slavery traces how slavery in French, Spanish, and Native North America shaped the legal processes of emancipation in the 19th century United States. By focusing on the nation's interior, Illinois, Dr. Heerman tells a complicated and nuanced story about the expansion and resilience of servitude far from the eastern seaboard, where other scholars tend to focus their studies. Welcome to the library, Scott. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. So we have pulled an item from our collection, and I don't know the first thing about it. Can you tell me a little bit about what we're looking at? Of course, I'm happy to. So this is a pamphlet called The Case of the Vigilante, published in London in 1823, And it had a very wide circulation here in Philadelphia and other eastern uh, cities during the first part of the 19th century. It's in some ways a very typical pamphlet, quarter size, printed, but it includes in in it a large fold-out map about twice, two and a half times the size of the pamphlet itself, which is a description and an account of a slave ship that was captured on the high seas. And the pamphlet tells the legal story and the human story of the illegal slave trade in the 1820s. So what is this, what is the significance of this pamphlet and this fold-out image in the context of your larger project? Yeah, so, so documents like this uh, have a lot of significances, of course, but one of them for me is it began to set my mind racing on a very different world of, of the politics of slavery and freedom than the one that I was used to 10 years ago. Um, Typically, the images that we see from the slave trade, think of movies like Amazing Grace, uh, are British, are Anglophone. Uh, The Brooks, for example, is the famous one. The Mm -hmm. case of the Zong, where people were thrown overboard so that they could collect the insurance money. Um, This is a French slave ship. And so it sort of pointed to me towards a world of an international slaving that was relevant to the United States. Another thing that struck me was its date. Uh, Slavery was, the slave trade was abolished in 1808. Yet here we are in the 1820s with one of these slave ships being intercepted. And a quick search online shows us that 1829 will be one of the peak years of the slave trade ever in its history. Hmm. So it made me think we had to start looking at histories of slavery against the law or slavery after legal emancipation. And then the final thing that I found so fascinating about it was that it's printed. It made me wonder, who's reading this? Hmm. Who's, who's running out to the newsstand to pick up these latest pamphlets? What are the audiences that are invested in this story of illegal slaving and of international slaving? So for all of those reasons, documents like this 
made me start to ask questions about slavery after abolition, about the adaptations to slavery once it became illegal, and about the international types of slaving that were really important to U.S. history. I adore the title of this book. Can I ask you to think a little bit or to talk a little bit more about the work it's doing? What does alchemy have to do with the institution of slavery? Of course. The title to the book was inspired by a few different things, one of which is a very famous quote from an abolitionist in the 1850s, where he said, slavery is the alchemy of turning blood into gold, hmm. right? The notion that through the lash of the master and through the brutality of the plantation infrastructure, masters and, and northern financiers would criminally enrich themselves off of the labor of black people. But as I turned this quote over, and it's very well known, you'll, you'll see it lots of places, including, including in my own book, it occurred to me that alchemy could stand in as a metaphor for all sorts of other slaving practices. Because one of the things that strikes me about the role of slavery in the United States and the role of slavery in Illinois in particular is that masters were constantly changing and adapting how slavery would function in response to changing legal, political, and cultural forces. And so, quite simply, masters were forever changing how slavery functioned. They turned uh, indigenous captives into enslaved people. They turned a variety of different enslaved people into a legal category, French Negroes. I'll unpack that in a moment. They turned all of those French Negroes, many of them anyway, into lifelong, uncompensated servants. Hmm. Freed people, or uh, enslaved people, turned themselves into freed people. And then in the end, in the final chapter of the book, these freed people were kidnapped captives once again as they were stolen out of Illinois and trafficked into the Deep South. And so it's that constant story of changing one type of unfree person into another unfree person, whether that be a captive indigenous person into a slave or a free person into a captured captive. That, I think, is the metaphor for understanding how slaving functioned over a few centuries in the heart of North America. Let's um, talk about these uh, French Negroes that you raise in this book. What challenges did the state's French colonial legacy pose for, say, 19th century social reformers? Sure. I mean, the, the French Negroes, in some ways, are at the core of the argument of the book. Um, and I, I stumbled onto them quite interestingly, because in the 1820s, there was this debate about amending Illinois' constitution to make it a slave state. And it didn't go anywhere at lost, and this is an episode that's been written about. But I was reading the newspaper accounts of, of, of trying to abolish these slaves and the leaders of the state. I mean, these are U.S. senators and governors. I mean, the real leaders of the state are going into this long discussion of the Seven Years' War, of when Virginia claimed Illinois. And I sort of sat there thinking, well, what does the Seven Years' War have anything to do with slavery in the 1820s, right? These, there's no real connection there. But in fact, there is. Because... Slavery, of course, was indigenous to North America, and French colonizers enslaved indigenous people, but they also brought their own enslaved populations to North America, as did the British when they claimed the region, 
as did the French when they claimed the region. And all of those various different enslaved people existed in Illinois until the, 18, until the 1780s, mm-hmm. when famously the U.S. government passed the Northwest Territory Ordinance and made all of these people free. It said slavery will not be allowed in the state. And what they did is they said, well, we won't introduce any more slaves into the state. But we're going to exempt all of the people in the state from the sort of ex post facto law. And what we're going to call all of those people is French Negroes. Mm. So this is an invented legal and political category. As I, the answer should have made clear, the French Negroes were not all of African descent, and they were not all Francophones. Some of them were British, from the British, British Caribbean. Some of them were African. And so it's the ability to create that legal category to respond to the assertion of U.S. power, to the assertions of the U.S. government that put the sort of alchemy of slavery on full display. Here you have all of these different types of enslaved people existing in what becomes U.S. territory and what becomes free soil. And they are recategorized as French Negroes. Hmm. And it's that legal category that then exists really until the 1840s because Illinois state constitution exempt them from emancipation uh, as do a variety of other Illinois of Illinois laws and so through the 1840s and 1850s a variety of anti-slavery activists a variety of African American activists were trying to free French negroes and that reality tells us that the alchemy of slavery is a force that shapes U.S. politics and U.S. culture right through the U.S. Civil War. So as I understand it, the French adapted and adapted to existing forms of bondage that predate their arrival. So I'm curious to know, how were indigenous forms of servitude different from the chattel slavery that we see proliferating in the late 18th and early 19th century? That's a fantastic question. And my book engages with that question in some really specific and I think interesting, of course, I think interesting ways. (laughs) So there's a story that exists in the scholarship right now, a story that I think is quite right, that forms of indigenous slavery and forms of Atlantic slavery worked in very, very different ways. That indigenous slavery was by and large kin-based. It was a system of captivity. It was not particularly racialized, although race plays into it in some interesting and complicated ways, but it is not racialized in the same same ways. And it exists as a form of alliance formation and to structure political formations in Native North America, essentially by raiding and then trading enslaved captive uh, Indian people. You're able to create alliances with people. You're able to create uh, sort of politics between various different uh, native, native nations. This is a story that others have told and told very well. Contrasting to that is the story of Atlantic plantation slavery, where enslaved people are chattel, where the institution is racialized ever more virulently as time goes on, where slave labor is primarily a system of coerced, degraded labor that is meant to sustain a plantation economy and a rich, a very few people, many of whom 
don't have anything to do with slavery, financiers and colonial, colonial officials. And so we have a literature that talks about these two types of slavery in sort of comparative terms. You know, native North America, French Canada, colonial Mexico, and, and, and then the borderlands, that's where we see native slavery going on. Whereas the eastern seaboard in the Caribbean is where we see Atlantic slavery going on. And there's some overlap, certainly. But what I try to do is to put that overlap front and center. Mm -hmm. What I try to suggest is rather than telling a comparative history of slavery, which is a, a great project and, and more should be done of that, I'm interested in telling an entangled history of slavery, where we foreground the relationships between indigenous and African descended slaves that rather than making those relationships incidental to the argument, they're the center of the argument. It's explaining how radically different people in very different forms of slavery nevertheless are captured into a single heterogeneous slave system in the French Illinois country. Hmm. So that rather than writing about many slaveries or a comparative history of slavery, we can write about one capacious, adaptive slave system that for centuries sustained the economy and other factors of society in Illinois. That's great. And I'd love to think a little bit more about the, the heterogeneity of your project. You describe slavery as, quote, fiendishly adaptable as a power relationship. And you write a little bit later that slavery across the Atlantic world varied immensely in human bondage in West Africa, the Caribbean, Native North America, the Chesapeake, the Deep South, New France, and New Spain all had different defining traits. That begs the question, why focus on Illinois? Yeah, the, the why Illinois question is a, is a great one. There were a few decisions behind that. To the first part of the question, I think part of what I had to understand as I was working on this book project is that rather than thinking of slavery as a status someone was in, right, as a sort of line over which someone crossed and then they became enslaved. I thought of it as a power relationship that someone fell victim to, mm -hmm. right, which allows us just to see more of the sort of kaleidoscope nature of slavery in this region and the sort of ever-changing, ever-reinventing, ever-adapting ways that masters used slaving strategies to keep people in bondage. And so with that in mind, it became clear to me that I was going to have to write a history that spanned a very long time, full century and a half, and that allowed me to deal with these communities with some complexity. That is to say, I really wanted to have a book where the reader understood the various different geographies, the various different economies that went into the slaving strategies that masters used. And so in the Illinois country, in 1805, right, in one tiny village, I can trace and show that we have an enslaved woman of indigenous descent. We have a servant who is signed to a 99-year contract without pay. We have a French Negro, a, a, a man of African descent who's francophone. And we have a person who's trying to sue for their freedom and gets kidnapped. And so I can ask the reader, which one of those four people is a slave? And how does slavery function? Is it the forms of indigenous bondage? Is it the forms of contract bondage? Is it the forms of inheritable bondage? Or 
Is it the forms of kidnapping? And the answer, of course, is it's all of these. It's not any one institution that is driving these people into bondage. And so to understand that, I needed a region like Illinois that was on a river where there was a lot of different types of migration that existed to a, in a lot of different geographies. Because at the same time, Illinois was part of native North America, was part of French North America, was part of the Upper South, and was a sort of bulwark of the free North. And seeing all of those factors colliding with each other in one place allows me to show the adaptability of slaving strategies that I argue we need to, we need to think about much more seriously as we write a new history of slavery and emancipation in the United States. At a superficial level, this ought to be a, a rather short book because um, you think about it should really be 1730 to 1818 because um, when Illinois entered the Union, it entered as a free state. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what accounts for the resiliency of slavery in the state and if you could think a little bit more about how gradual emancipation blurred the boundaries between slavery and freedom in other ostensibly free states. Sure. So I, I will just say that uh, when I started this project, a family member asked me what, you know, what the book was going to be about. And I said, well, I'm writing this sort of long history of slavery in Illinois. And this, this family member looks at me and goes, well, I thought you were a historian. And I said, well, I am a historian. It's like, but... Uh, so you're writing a book of fiction? Like, what's the history book you're going to write? And I've heard similar iterations of that over the time, right? That there is something just endlessly surprising about the resiliency of slavery in Illinois over the long stretch. Part of the reason of that is because there's no one factor that can end slavery, right? That fundamental to what I think, if slavery is an institution, you can abolish it, right? Mm -hmm. We could abolish the library company an institution, though we should never, ever do that. <laughs> and that's not my vote, right? But this is an institution that you could abolish, right? Mm -hmm. You could abolish a university. You could abolish a church. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't be in the business of doing that, but you can. If you think of slavery as a social practice, not as an institution, the question then becomes, what is the law that you would pass that would stop indigenous slaving, that would stop contract bondage, that would stop kidnapping, that would stop all of the other forms of slaving. I mean, just, just actually think for yourselves. How would you write that law? What would that text say? And I'll just point out that no fewer than three times did Illinois pass language saying, neither slavery nor servitude shall be allowed in the state. That never worked. And so what this helps us see in Illinois, as history in Illinois helps us see, is something that we see going on in various other states, which is New York, Pennsylvania, Indiana, all abolished slavery multiple times. Mm. New York passes its Gradual Emancipation Act. It then has a series of state court decisions that make sure that anyone, any child that's a servant can't be a lifelong servant. So those are sort of a way of abolishing slaving strategies. And then it passes another Emancipation Act in the 1820s. Pennsylvania, for example, passes its famous 1780 abolition law. But then there's a 1788 abolition law. Then there's an anti-kidnapping law after that. Then the state constitution gets amended two more times to make Pennsylvania ever fuller a free state. Indiana had the Northwest Territory Ordinance, a state Supreme Court ruling, two state constitutions. One of the things that we see 
is abolition is constantly being passed over and over and over again, which begs the question, why? Why, why would you simply keep abolishing slavery? And the answer that we see in Illinois and that we, we can certainly see in other states as well is because slavery is not an institution that you can simply get rid of by passing and enforcing a law. It is a set of practices that has to be combated in a variety of different economic, cultural, legal fora. I had uh, written down this quote from early in your book where you write, in Illinois, slavery never became an institution. And abolition barely became a movement. So if we're thinking about slavery as a social act, resistance to slavery is also a social act. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how the abolitionist or anti-slavery movement such as it existed in Illinois differed from other states. Absolutely. This is also, I think, really important because it shows a much wider landscape of the freedom struggle in 19th century America. So the traditional story and the story that I thought I was going to find is that abolition laws get passed. Those then need to be enforced at the local level where anti-slavery organizations such as the PAS get involved. There's then, a, over time, a much more broad-based campaign where pamphlets such as, such as the one we started with in the collections here sort of filling the shelves get published and then ultimately full-blown abolition, radical abolition movement takes off in the United States. But what's amazing to me about Illinois is no anti-slavery or gradual emancipation law ever gets passed, really until the 1840s, the late 1840s at that. The state has no anti-slavery newspaper or anti-slavery pamphlets until the mid-1840s, and there's not even an anti-slavery society in Illinois until the late 1830s. So for reference, New York passes its first gradual emancipation law in 1799, its second emancipation law in 1827, it's a full decade later before we even have an anti-slavery society in the state. So without a newspaper, without a, um, a society, without the types of laws we would expect, how do you begin to abolish slavery, right? All of the standard forces that you would think would be in Illinois aren't there. It made me realize, and I think it makes a lot of us have to contend with the fact that the movement to abolition, the movement to freedom, is so much more complicated than the traditional story of the abolition movement allows us to understand. As you were speaking about the sort of belated anti-slavery movement in Illinois, I was remembering that I believe it was in Chicago that the first anti-slavery society was organized. But one of the surprises to me about your project was that abolitionism, in Illinois at least, doesn't necessarily emerge from urban institutions in the same way that it might in New York or Massachusetts or even Maryland. So it really does seem like in Illinois, this is a truly grassroots movement that concretizes in rural communities. Can you talk a little bit about freedom villages? Of course, yes. So part of the story that emerges at the end of the book, as I try to explain where anti-slavery energies are coming from, again, without a press or an institution or the types of laws you would expect, it becomes clear to me that there is a black population in Illinois, but it's not settled primarily in Chicago at first. It's settled in the southern reaches of the state, these tiny black villages of a few hundred people that are founded between the 1820s and the 1840s. Miller Grove, Brooklyn, New Philadelphia are their names. 
And this is the, the ones in Illinois that I talk about are part of a much wider trend across North America where black villages are settled in the countryside. We have more of these being found all of the time through archaeology, but you know, north of 75, 80 villages exist all over the Old Northwest. So this is a strategy that African Americans are using, responding to the societies in which they, they live in. And, and in some ways, it might strike us as a surprising one, but in some ways not. These villages are often written about in the scholarship as maroon communities, hmm. people that choose to live in a rural place, in an isolated place, to wall themselves off from the types of institutional racism and the types of enslavement that plague the African-American community in North America and, and in the Caribbean more generally. But what became clear to me is that these freedom villages were not walled off or isolated from any of these forces. They were attacking these forces. And in a lot of ways, these freedom villages are incubators of emancipation. They are the places where information about the law can be pooled, where money can be collected, where families can be reassembled, where you can aid self-emancipated slaves running north with the types of resources that they need. In short, just as there's many ways into slavery, there are many ways out of slavery. And these freedom villages put all of those different freedom processes on full display, because we can just imagine how in a village of 100 people in parts of southern Illinois where French Negroes, quote unquote, are still laboring in bondage, we can imagine the types of conversations, the types of strategizing, the types of resources that can be offered to those enslaved people. And so in reality, these tiny, small black villages posed an existential threat to slavery in southern Illinois. And it's from there that we can begin to trace the movement to freedom, not from the newspapers, societies, and the halls of legislatures that traditionally are dominant in our narratives. Thinking about alternative forms of resistance, you write about a number of different ways that enslaved peoples challenge different forms of bondage through a variety of different strategies. At one point, you write, African Americans challenged their masters by haggling over contracts and attempting to use the servitude system against their masters. Was this kind of um, bureaucratic resistance unique to Illinois? No, not at all. Um, we see these types of negotiations within the contract system all over the Midwest and the U.S. North. And so just briefly for some context, the contract system in Illinois existed largely after slavery became technically illegal hmm. for masters to sign people into terms of servitude. And I have dozens and dozens of contracts for people who are 99-year servants without compensation. And so the contract system and the servitude system allows slavery to exist under another form. However, if we understand slaving and we understand the movement to freedom as a set of social practices, it then shouldn't surprise us that the very instant set of practices and the very legal systems that are meant to keep people in bondage can also be used to help excavate people from bondage. And so to just give an example of this that makes it quite concrete, there's a woman who I write about who is a victim of the transatlantic slave trade. She comes from West Africa, lands at Charleston, and then a few days later is shipped to St. Louis, where she then is bought and brought into the Illinois country. 
and within 30 days she is forced to sign a contract that is going to make her a servant, quote-unquote, for the rest of her life. So it's very clear in this context how the servitude system is a way to perpetuate slavery, right? You go from the transatlantic slave trade to being a servant. This woman, though, then had a contract, and when her master violated it, she could use that violation as a basis for her freedom. Mm -hmm. And so when we ask the question, is the servitude system a way to keep slavery alive or something more akin to gradual emancipation, a way to sort of push the needle of abolition forward, the answer is both. The answer is that depends on how different constituencies are operating within the slaving system. And so if you know, I chart the variation in over 600 of these contracts, and what you see is that just as there are some for 99 years, there are also some for a year and 20 days, right? Where you get paid $200 at the end and there's actually proof of payment, so I know it happened. And it's that sort of dynamism in the contract system that I try to tell us is part of the adaptable landscape of slaving, the alchemy of slavery, that I argue needs to be uh, more front and center in our, in our histories. I was uh, genuinely surprised at some of the religious and political coalitions that emerge in this book. For example, you note that between 1800 and 1845, priests baptized some 200 African-American infants as slaves in local Catholic churches. Meanwhile, you write that evangelical ministers chartered that first anti-slavery society in Chicago. Is there a story about politics or social movements in the Great Awakening, or is this perhaps one of many undulations in this ongoing fight over slavery? That's a fantastic question. And these church records were so shocking when I found them and, and are so fundamental to this story. Because as you say, into the 1840s, I have a church record where someone is saying Lewis is baptized as a slave belonging to his master. And so these records show us a couple of things. The first is that the system of slaving that goes on in Illinois through the 19th century is not clandestine. At first, when I thought about this, I figured, okay, these slaves are locked in basements and trapped in closets and sort of in the shadows of society. Not at all. They're brought to the local church house, an important civic institution in southern Illinois. And the fact that they are enslaved people is publicly known. Enslaved people are also written about in newspapers, right? There's runaway slave ads in Illinois into the 1830s, which given that slavery is illegal, tells us we need to think very differently about how the law is functioning here. But at the same time, as you note, it was Wesleyan Methodists and all sorts of other evangelical uh, leaders that were at the vanguard of Illinois' anti-slavery movement even though that movement came late. And they were forever lamenting how late the movement was coming in Illinois. I mean, this isn't just my, my judgment. They knew that too. And so when we understand that religion can play such radically different roles, it helps us again to think of slavery as more than an institution. Slaving becomes a question of can masters recruit the state in the forms of the law? Can they conscript financial institutions and banks and other things to give them the money they need to create slave economies? And can they rely on social and cultural institutions, such as newspapers, such as the church? And what we see in Illinois is that never shakes out in any one way. And so rather than seeing slavery as an institution, 
that reduces people to a status that is then sanctioned by the law or, or by the church, what we can see is a struggle to try and recruit the church as part of your own movement, right? As part of your own ideology, as part of your own practices. And in some places in Illinois, abolitionists managed to do that. And in other places in Illinois, slaveholders managed to do that. And so once again, Illinois is one of these great places where it is at once part of the Upper South and part of the Free North. Mm -hmm. And it's that struggle that is really the engine of change. That story of contestation, of ongoing, ceaseless contestation is a real through line of this book. You write that the long arc of emancipation can make it seem that abolitionism would necessarily triumph. And yet the reinvention of enslavement in the region shatters any notion of freedom's inevitable rise. I wonder if you could speak to the inverse, though. How did the perpetual reinvention of slavery make Illinois abolitionists more dexterous? That's a great question, because I think the constant reinvention of slaving in Illinois meant that abolitionists and anti-slavery figures had to use a very different type of anti-slavery politics than we saw in other parts of the country. And it's an anti-slavery politics that is going to come to be incredibly influential in the national freedom struggle during the middle of the 19th century. And I think this dynamic is best on display in this famous moment in 1858 in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in Freeport. Lincoln and Douglas were, of course, tangling with each other in seven famous debates all across Illinois in the run-up to the 1858 Senate election. And Douglas was advocating his own brand of slavery and anti-slavery politics by endorsing the notion of popular sovereignty that the federal government should say nothing about slavery and that each state should be able to vote their own way, whether they should be free soil or slave territory. And Lincoln wanted to press Douglas on this point by asking him what he thought about the Supreme Court's decision year previous of Dred Scott versus Sanford, which limited states' authority to make themselves free soil, which said slavery was a national institution and so here we had a situation where Douglas's politics of slavery seemed to be colliding with a Supreme Court decision, and Lincoln was interested in pinning him down on this. And Douglas's answer has since been called the Freeport Doctrine, but what he said is, slavery is a local institution. Slavery is supported or opposed by local communities. The Supreme Court can rule any way it wants as to the abstract question of slavery or freedom. But slavery will exist or die depending on how local communities support or oppose those sorts of power relationships. And in reality, Douglas is saying that because he has lived in this region his whole life. He has known that the French Negroes exist. He has known that any attempt to pass a law or a decree that makes a place a slave state or makes a place a free state is always going to be mediated by the churches, by the newspapers, by the local freedom villages, by the people that are migrating in and out of the state. And so Douglas's national political platform makes sense really because of the context of the French Negroes, because of the context of the ways in which slaving was forever adapting and by extension abolition was ever having to innovate to find new ways to stamp out human bondage 
in the state. You brought up Abraham Lincoln. I don't have to now, except I will continue to ask a question about him. Of course, he's one of our more famous Illinoisans. So you have this this wonderful anecdote about how in the early 1840s, Lincoln helps to free, I believe his name is Nance Cromwell from bondage in a local case, and how later during the war, Nance's son, William Costley, I believe, takes up arms for the cause. And that raises a question for me. How did Lincoln's social, political, and legal career in Illinois shape his views, his national views on slavery? Of course, the Lincoln question is here. I was also told by someone once, I was debating whether to put Lincoln in or not in the dissertation. And I was told by by my advisor, well, you can put him in now or you can put him in later. I'll let that choice up be up to you, but you're not getting off the hook. And in, and in some ways, coming to terms with the Lincoln question is the sort of payoff of the types of analysis that I think we can we can get from this approach. And so, one of the things that I that I love about that case is it's it's a case of this woman named Nance Cromwell, and she in 1828 was one of these servants who was sold at public auction just outside of Springfield. And she filed a lawsuit in the 1820s claiming, you know, by several different laws, this should probably be illegal. And she lost before the state Supreme Court in 1828. This is, just to give a sense of perspective, this is one year after New York had passed its, univer- its, its immediate Emancipation Act. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is very late that we are having women being sold as chattel outside of Springfield, Illinois. And in some ways, her story talks about the transformation that goes on in this state that Lincoln is part of. Because in 1841, she exits her servitude contract, and she gets re-enslaved and is going to be kidnapped. And it's in that context that she again files a freedom suit, which again ends up before the state Supreme Court. And as someone with her background undoubtedly knew, in a situation like that, what you need is a good lawyer— And she had one because Abraham Lincoln was that lawyer Hmm. in the Tazewell County Courthouse. And then again before the state Supreme Court. Surprising probably nobody. Lincoln won the case. He's a pretty competent legal mind. And Nance went free. But what's so interesting is in 1841, Stephen Douglas stat on the state Supreme Court. And so rather than thinking of 1858 as the Lincoln-Douglas debates, The first Lincoln-Douglas debate, if you want to think about it in these ways, was in 1841, Hmm. because they debated slavery and freedom for the first time in that forum. And I think what it does is helps us, and if we understand that, and we understand this context and the social world that Lincoln was coming out of, and we understand that Lincoln was chewing on questions of how you make someone free for a very, very long time before he set his hands to that task nationally. It makes a lot of his political ideology more legible, I think. Notably, this notion that someone is free, not necessarily when they have rights, because Lincoln, of course, was hostile to black rights for much of his career, although he changed as time went on. But they are free when he says, when the hands can feed the mouth from Mm -hmm. the bread that they alone have earned, right? That a woman like Nance is free Not if she can sit on a jury, not if she can vote, not if she has civil rights, but if she can be left alone to hire her labor out, right? She is free if she owns herself. 
and this free labor ideology, which scholars have spent decades excavating and, and debating and understanding, I think is, is most intelligible when you look at the types of cases Lincoln takes and when you look at the intractable nature of the problem. Nobody coming out of this environment could have possibly imagined that passing an emancipation proclamation would end slavery. Mm -hmm. Nobody coming out of this environment could possibly believe that passing a law was going to end the problem immediately. Instead, what Lincoln, I think, was interested in doing was coming up with an anti-slavery politics that was going to create a durable freedom for people like Nance that would protect her from the types of predation that she fell victim to that summer in 1840. That's great. And I, I want to let you go soon, but I have one last question. I know that this book was, was published by Penn Press last fall, fall 2018, which happens to be when you were here as a, a long-term fellow, thanks to the support of the National Endowment of Humanities. And I'm curious to know, what were you working on last fall? Do we have something else in the works? Yes, yes. There's another, there's another project in the works. And to bring this full circle, it, it circles back to some of the issues brought up in that pamphlet of the case of the vigilante. I'm working on a book project right now that looks at the kidnapping of freed people, the types of people that appear at the end of my book, but looks at their kidnapping internationally. And so I've been tracing a series of cases of freed people in Philadelphia who were kidnapped and trafficked to the Caribbean, mostly Saint-Domingue, but also uh, in Jamaica and in, and in Cuba. Hmm. And this is a story that, again, begins in the sort of 1750s in a landscape where there are many different types of coercive captivity and continues through the 19th century with a series of cases of freed people who are trafficked all around the Caribbean, from Cuba to Texas to Florida, in order to think about a very similar set of legal and cultural problems. How do you make freedom manifest? How do you make freedom real for people who have the legal promise of it? That was a question that a lot of people, not just Lincoln, had their minds on in the mid-19th century, and it's, it's one I'm going to have my mind on for a few more, a few more years. Hmm. So hopefully when you're not digging through the archives in Havana, we can get you to come back to Philadelphia and spend some time at the library company. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. Really appreciated having you here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Dr. Sarah Knott, professor of history at Indiana University and the author of Mother is a Verb, an unconventional history. 